welcome to Stock Talk, a podcast series which brings together livestock specialists, vets and farmers to give you the tools you need to improve your business and embrace the future. Stock Talk is presented by myself, Robert Ramsey, and produced by Kirsten Blackwood as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. So today's livestock podcast is something a wee bit different. This podcast is focused on beef, sheep and dairy conventional systems uh, for the last few months, but we've decided to move into some alternative systems as well. And today we're starting to talk about deer. So I'm joined, now basically the deer world is somewhere where I have an interest, but not much knowledge, but I'm lucky I'm joined today by two pretty specialist speakers actually. Um, One is Alan Snedden from the Venison Advisory Service, and the other is a former colleague of mine, Ali Lane from Glen Rennes Estate at Keith. So to start with, Alan, can you maybe just give us a wee bit of an insight into what your role is and, and what you do? Yeah, thanks, Robert. Um, well, I've been involved in deer farming since um, 1985 when I worked at Glensoch, which was the Hill Farm Research Organization's deer farm unit at uh, near Fetter Cairn on the Cairn Mount. Um, I was lucky enough to go there as, as a student and then was kept on full-time. So my involvement in deer farming has been since then. I've been pretty much full-time either in an advisory or a management role, um, usually solely with deer, but have worked with cattle and sheep as well. Um, so my role at the moment has been as a consultant. We've helped um, probably the Venison Advisory Service has helped in the past 10 years to set up in the region of 25 new deer farms in Scotland and a few in England. Um, some of them new entrants, some of them uh, conventional farmers looking to diversify. Yeah, it's amazing to see. And it is certainly a thing, I'm based in Ayrshire and, and there's a few commercial deer farms popping up and it is, it's an interesting new enterprise to add to a farm. But what what is the market like? So what obviously we're all in this for... Um, you know, we're here to make money. What What is the market for venison and, and how does that look going forward? Well, the market for venison has changed. The dynamics of it have changed in that historically um, there hasn't really been a, a huge domestic consumption of venison, but that's totally changed now. Um, most of the venison that's produced in the UK or indeed culled in the UK is now um, consumed by UK consumers. Um so that the market's growing for farm venison uh, roughly at 20% year on year. And that's driven by consumers looking for a different uh, type of meat, a different alternative to beef, um, a healthier option, and something for a special meal occasion. So, yeah, venison sales at the moment are very strong. Yeah, and is there room, there's obviously to 25 new deer farms is quite a significant expansion, obviously, of that industry. Is there... Is there room in the market for that, for, for additional deer farms? And is there also, certainly in the beef world, we're seeing you know, there's always a, a worry about processing capacity as well. So is the same story for venison or, or is there capacity in the system for more? Uh, that's it's a difficult question. Right now, as you probably know, retail is, is very difficult and consumers are, are conscious about their spend. Uh, venison sits probably at the top end of um, what you would equiv- equivalent would be the top end beef market. So actually, right now, the, the retailers are experiencing um, a lower spend on the higher value cuts and, and a bigger spend on the processed and um, lesser value cuts. Now, that will change coming towards um, November, December, December, the kind of Christmas time. 
where um, traditionally there's, there's, there isn't enough venison in the system to supply that. And the shortfall has been um, imported from New Zealand. Now, the two major retailers of farm venison are, they've pledged to basically stop importing from New Zealand and have done since 2021. So most of the, the farm venison in the UK is processed through Dovecote Park, um, who supply um, several high-end retailers with, with beef and venison, and their capacity is is big. Um, they can process probably up to 200 deer per day if they have to. Um, at the moment, their issue is chill space, um, not so much processing um, capacity. Yeah, interesting. And that commitment to, or to move away from the New Zealand stuff, is that based on... And intent is that trying to support the domestic industry, or is that based on standards and different, you know, welfare issues? Uh, no, I think we have. And New Zealand have. I worked in New Zealand for seven years. I manage farms over there, and their welfare standards are very, very high. Um, the, I think that it's a consumer perception that New Zealand is very, very far away, and and it's the food miles thing. Um, so that's it's consumer driven. The consumers are, are looking at the labels and saying, "No, that's New Zealand." Why can't we have British? And it's as simple as that. Yeah, and and I suppose there's an, an interesting one is, you know, it's a high value product. So you're looking at, a, you know, probably that very engaged consumer with plenty of money in the system to spend. So you, it probably is a more ethical consumer that you're you're focusing on. I would expect. Exactly. I mean, the the ven- venison is perceived as. Um, I wouldn't quite call it a luxury meat, but it's it's an, a meal for a special occasion. Um, but more and more families are buying into the, the sort of processed stuff like your your grill steaks and, and burgers and meatballs um, because of the, of the health benefits of venison. It's very low in fat, it's low in cholesterol, it's high in iron. And now, um, historically, people were afraid to cook venison because it had this perception of being dry, being difficult to cook, being tough. But obviously, with farm venison, prime venison has to be under 27 months of age. So it's very consistent. It's traceable. um, And the eating quality is the same week after week after week if you're buying it um, from these supermarkets as farm venison. Yeah. Now, thinking about systems, what does... A Scottish deer farm, you know, obviously we're used to seeing red deer roaming hills and grazing some really poor quality forage. Um, you know, it's a very iconic image of Scotland as, as that red deer. When it comes to farmed venison, what are we looking for? Similar type hill ground? Are we looking for high quality rotational grazing pasture? You know, where does it fit in the system? That's a good question, Robert. Um, basically, if you go back to the work that was done at Glensoch, um, the original deer farming unit in Glensoch was on Heather Hill. And the deer, yes, they did very well, but production levels, growth rates, lactation, everything was improved when the deer were brought down onto the lower ground. So there's sort of two types of deer farm, if you like, in Scotland. There, there is... Um, extensive store calf producing units like you get with, you know, same as sheep, blacky sheep. And they will utilize rougher grazing and, and hill, um, but most of the calves will be taken off in the autumn and sold as stores. And there's also um, more intensive low ground systems where the stocking levels are much higher. The production levels are higher and growth rates are higher um, because of the pasture quality. Uh, rotational systems work extremely well for young deer 
um, finishing deer. Um, the problem you have with, with calving hinds is that once they're set stocked for calving, because they hide their calves um, and, and the calves basically lie completely still for four or five days after they're born and they're set stocked, which means pasture management is, is quite difficult until you can move the calves, uh, hinds and calves safely without leaving calves behind onto um, better quality pasture. For instance, we have a system, I manage a farm in Ahaddon where we have rougher areas for the hinds at calving and then by the middle of July, the hinds are then moved on to silage aftermaths and that really affects in the growth rates of the calves. What we want to do is to have a real well-grown calf going into the winter and then that calf will achieve um, a high slaughter weight the following growing season in the spring, so the autumn the following year. So they're killed mm -hmm. at 16 months roughly. Yeah. So, so basically, if you've got from that, I'm thinking if you've got experience of running a kind of traditional upland, decent hill type sheep system, you probably would slot into the, the deer. Obviously, that's a different is a different process, and there's a lot to learn. But that utilisation of rougher ground and and higher quality forage still works in a deer a deer farming scenario. It's not vastly different. Yeah, it does work. I mean, the, the advantage of having the rougher area is that the, the hind does have an, an instinct to hide its calf. If you have them in um, bare fields with no cover, you actually will get calf losses from, from hinds physically pushing their calves through the fences. I've seen them do it to find cover on the outside. So if, if you have areas, um, sort of bare areas at calving time, you have to put additional cover in there, be it branches or, or uh, whatever, brash. Um, just so the calves can can hide. The other thing is with extensive, um, as Alistair knows, with, with extensive um, areas, fencing costs are huge. So the relative stocking density in um, a marginal sort of hill ground is much, much lower than is on good quality ground. So it's the cost of the fencing relative to the stocking density that you have to be aware of. Um, you can incorporate a fence design into a forestry scheme. Um, which will give you part of the boundary rather than just set up a deer farm, standalone deer farm, which would be very expensive. Yeah, for me, that's that's a quite exciting bit. As you know, we talk about integrating trees onto farms and we talk about, you know, sheep and trees and the th different government schemes, but actually the, the deer and trees idea is really quite, you know, quite interesting. If you plant the poorer stuff and, and target where that's going, you can get a chunk of your infrastructure built you know, very much grant needed. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, there's very, very little in the way of grants for fencing. Um, the new entrant capital grant and the new entrant young farmers grant. Um, so, you know, four or five years ago, there were several deer farm units set up through that process and using that available capital. But that's that's gone now, unfortunately. Yeah, I think the only similar scheme to that would be the small farmers capital grant, which is still on the go. But again, it's very limited to size and, and income thresholds and things. So it's probably not that relevant, but certainly the forestry one is, is interesting and, and it, it's nice to hear a positive forestry story. So I think we'll just bring Alistair in on when we're talking about systems and talking about infrastructure. It would be good to hear from, from Ali what what his experience was at Glenrunnis and, and how he got to where he is just now. So, uh, hi, Ali. How's it? How's it going? Yeah, good, Robert. Thanks for that. Yeah, we, uh, as I say, I came on to Glenrunnis full time manager probably about three, four years ago, after working with SEC for twenty five years. 
So I've had experience with grant funding, uh, scheme chasing, etc. So that was very useful in this situation. How did we come to having red deer at Glenridis? Well, we actually had a wild herd of about 250, 300 deer would always come onto the estate. And they would eat a lot of ground down. They would eat a lot of our grassland down. So one of my maybe stupid ideas or an idea I came up with was just like Alan said, to design a scheme of forestry which would uh, help me fence off part of the land that I was going to use for deer. I've actually completed 20,000 metres of deer fencing and 14,000 metres of that was paid for by the Scottish Government under forestry scheme. So not only have we got new fences, but we've also planted 60 hectares of new woodland, which in years to come will be a great benefit for shelter, etc., etc. So we started fencing off this area that the deer used to come into, and even before the fence are finished, uh, we managed to catch 250 wild uh, red deer which all sounds great at the time. And uh, we've had, you know, it took us two years to tame them down. Now they'll follow me with a snacker. But as anyone knows, it's all to do with genetics. And that's one of the things I've learned big style. It's good catching these, these hinds, but they don't have the genetics like some of the real park farm deer that we bought in. So we have added to that, and I'm currently sitting with 400 breeding hinds. Uh, I bought in another probably 200 of them, and that's making a huge difference to the genetics. And are you finding, Ali, can you, can you see the bot part ones versus, you know, if they're standing together, are they pretty obviously different animals? Uh, they're chalk and cheese. The bot, the bot hinds that we bought are, you know, again, nearly twice the size. The calves that they produce are, are totally different. You know, they're just, they get up and go, the, the genetics. It did help. We bought in uh, park stags and we used them on our wild hinds and that made a huge difference right from the start, you know, just buying the genetics in through the sire. But uh, having the hind genetics too also helped. So we're slowly processing our way through uh, getting rid of the smaller versions, the smaller uh, hinds, the, the non-productive hinds and working our way through that. Certainly, I was lucky enough to go to Glenrennes for the day, and it was, you know, it's an amazing estate. Do you want to just kind of run through what the rest of the estate looks like, and maybe what the impact of the deer have had on that as well? Yeah, we're 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 a six and a half thousand estate up in Speyside. Uh, we've run a commercial herd of suckler cows, hundred sixty of them. Uh, we have some pedigree shorthorns. We had some pedigree Anguses as well, and tried to do too much. Uh, beef and sheep came in select from SEC and told us to change things and we have changed things to, to that so yeah suckler cows were organic so we're finishing starting to finish again a lot of our organic cow we have blackface and mule yows 1600 of them and um, we've got a sporting estate with a big pheasant shoot which the owner kind of provisionally that, that's why he bought the estate so but we integrate it all together it works together and one of the big aims i've done when i've come here is try to utilize all the areas that were neglected in years gone by and that's why the deer herd came onto an area that was only getting grazed by about 200 sheep and that's you know we're talking about 300 acres 
because no one could go over the back to see them. They couldn't be bothered doing that. So they had the luxury. So we've just tried to have a good mix coming in. But as everyone says, capital investment, I'm, I'm lucky the owner has a bit of money. So the capital investment has helped initially for us to do it. But he's a businessman. I've done a business plan with Alan's help. And uh, we hope to have a payback period in five years for the capital investment. Yeah, which is really quite exciting, isn't it? Um, it's good. You did miss off the most important enterprise, obviously, with the exception of you're the most important enterprise on the estate. Well, that, that's what we always fall back on if things go wrong here. We've got a gin and a vodka distillery. So we, we produce our own organic gin and our own organic vodka. So, you know, if things are tough, we've always got that to help us out to get through the bad things. But no, right. it, it, it's we, we're quite a diverse uh, in the state. So, yeah, it works all well together. Alan, see from a legal perspective, so how does that, you're obviously taking, harnessing a wild resource, I suppose, as that that existing wild herd, to convert them from a wild herd to a, a park or a farmed deer scenario. What What is the process there? Um, well, basically what Alistair's done, he's turned a problem into an asset. And he's also, he's, he's basically... Those deer were hefted on that ground. Now, that's a key thing. If you want to enclose those deer, um, they have to be on ground they're familiar with rather than actually if you capture deer somewhere else and relocate them, it usually doesn't work because those deer just want to go back to where they came from. But legally, you can do it, but you have to uh, do it within the the shooting season, the the season for culling deer. So as in the hinds have to be in there by the 15th of February. and enclosed by then and after that it's it's a it's a gradual training process you will get hinds that will naturally be more quiet than other hinds and they, those will gradually train the other ones to come into feed and as alistair says they're now following them with a the snacker um you will get hinds that will just not settle the odd one of those should, should probably just be called out because that upsets everything else it's always interesting when you hear beef farmers talking about you know diff- different breeds and i'm not going to mention breeds but different breeds that um people's version of a quiet cow does depend on what breed they're working with and i think a you know a nice quiet hind is probably a similar thing they will still be pretty sparky and different to um different to work with but interesting the, the same story you know cattle or any other species if you if you cull out the real bad flighty ones it tends to calm the whole lot down and, and you know, have a, a big impact on the rest. Um, what about tagging, Ali? We're on to probably um, basic or fundamental questions, I suppose. So from a legislation point of view, what what is the traceability story for deer? Currently, as it stands, and Alan will correct me, uh, I'm wrong. We have the, the only way we tag them is for management purposes, plus for also for going down to the slaughterhouse and to dovecot. You know, there is no legal uh, requirement as yet for tagging deer or to be a specific uh, number. But I believe that will come and that will come into the system as well. So, you know, we we tag the calves, we've tagged all the hinds, we've tagged all the hinds that we caught, so we know what we deal with them, so we can check them year on, year on, whether they're in calf. So anything that's not calved within two years, we can get rid of. And that's a case of just getting them in and checking their udders when we get them in in August. That's the only way we can tell if they've calved or not. And then we just do it on that basis. 
and are you are you using so it is a it is a fairly hands off process you know it's it's not as a as labor intensive as a sheep system for example where we're weighing and continually handling and clipping and you know it, it is a a more seasonal approach but is there a role for technology and and life weight measuring life weight gains and things is that somewhere where you, where you think we go with deer or is that over complicating the job I'll come in. I think, yeah, there's a huge role for that. I think that's the way to move forward. You know, electronic tagging. You don't get really close to a lot of deer with the, to read their numbers, etc. So, you know, having them coming into a race that you can electronic tag them, it's a lot happier. And, and just to keep the monitoring them and to see for birth weights and weights. We have a way sale. I managed to get a grant from the capital grant scheme for a way sale and our handling system. So I've got that. So when I take when I wean the calves or take the calves in to tag them, I'll I'll record their weights and start that, and then they'll come in again to wean them. I'll record the weights again after that. Yeah, so it it is the same. You know, it's the similar. All the data we can get, all the information we can get, will ultimately drive profitability and increasingly, you know, the importance of carbon audits and things down the line as well. Those efficient animals is who we're who we're aiming for. Yeah, data, data is very important if you want to manage a system properly and be able to work and select the hinds, select the animals that are doing the, the best for you. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think if you've got benchmark figures um, that you can work on year on year, you can see where you've improved your system. I mean, deer do extremely well on high clover pastures, and uh, that has a really positive influence on lactation and weaning weights. Yeah, and what about... Is that you know worm burden obviously, and again I'm going back to sheep, but worms are the main thing that holds sheep performance back. Is that is there a parasite burden in deer as well? Um, there can be. I mean, lungworm can be an issue. Um, we normally treat deer on the farms that I manage for lungworm. I'm not talking about adult deer. I'm talking about uh, calves. We would treat the calves um, in September. Calves in September. We would treat yearling deer in probably June, July. Just just a once, probably. Um, adult hinds do have resistance, um, so it's not usually necessary to treat adult deer. We do have an issue ongoing with, with warble fly, and it's not so much that um, it affects the performance of animals, but certainly deer presented for slaughter with warble um, is an issue for the processor. That can be treated quite easily with, with Ivomec-based um, drugs. Okay. And what about liver fluke? Again, liver fluke is something that's creeping in. Um, we would tend to do them later in the season with, um, for instance, a Fasimic duo, which is Ivermec plus something else. I can't remember. <laughs> uh, Triclobendazole, I think, yeah. Am I right in saying, Alan, stress is the biggest killer? Stress is the one? I'd say stress it can be. I mean, stress can affect all sorts of things. If you've got, for instance, um, Yoni's disease, which pops itself up in a deer herd, usually that's triggered by stress. And sometimes that stress has been uh, social pressure. If you've, you've bought in hinds from two or three different farms and tried to set up a herd, um, that whole social aspect within deer, within a deer herd, is it takes years for them to integrate. I think Alistair will concur with that. But um, that sort of stress can sometimes trigger um, something like Yoni's. It's just sitting there but isn't actually producing a clinical symptom, and the stress trigger will, will trigger that off. 
there's a disease called yersiniosis, which is um, it's a bacteria. It can cause huge losses and does cause huge losses in New Zealand, but usually it's a management issue. And again, it's a stress trigger. It's either nutritional or environmental um, weather, a weather event post weaning. So the weaning process is the most stressful process that the deer have to go through. Um, it just has to be managed correctly to, to minimise that stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. Alan, Alan's totally right. I think they're a very social group and we have never mixed our wild ones that we caught with the ones that we've bought. We've managed them as different groups and uh, kept them that way apart. And I think it's very important, as you say, not to just think, I've got a rough bit of ground, but I'll get some deer in. That's one of the things we kind of thought initially, but it's very important to get your grassland management right. The better the grass, the better the growth rates, the better performance, and that's what we're learning to do and trying to convert some of these fields into better grassland for future uh, performance benefits so what about i suppose to you both if we're looking at so if we take that new entrant scenario so we're taking somebody who's looking at you know setting up a new setting up a farm or setting, or setting up a new enterprise if we've got say a hundred acre block is deer farming the way for or, or, or a, a, a viable option on a, a relatively small scale Personally, without without grant assistance, no. Um, there's a, there's an economy of scale here. So most of the, um, the in the recent deer farmers that have got into it are looking at two to four hundred hind units. I mean, they're not looking at small units. Your infrastructure costs are quite high. So your handling facility, for example, is a, a major capital cost. If you've only got a small number of deer, then it's, it's a big outlay for a relatively small income. And also transport costs are huge. So for instance, an Arctic will take 120 finished yearlings. Um, if you've only got 100 hinds and you're only putting 80 on, then your transport costs are really high unless you can share with another farmer. And relatively speaking, la- labor is relatively low. Um, so you can scale up without actually having to spend a lot more time with them, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, the labour side of things, I'm currently using uh, uh, just my keepers that I have on the state. They come and help us at the times that we need them when we take them in to de-antler them to do certain things. So we've no extra staff, no extra labour involved in it at all. Yeah, um, it's interesting. To me, you know, when you look at the margins in it, there's there's strong gross margins. You know, there's, there's, there's good money in here, but there's also good money in, in a normal sheep system as well. And when you look, when you compare the gross margins of a good and intensive low ground sheep system at the moment to deer, the only difference is the significant infrastructure cost of, of the deer farm. So I get, you know, Alan, your point about grant funding is really important. And I think hopefully, you know, down the line there is support for this sector because it's a really important sector for the economy and certainly one that, allows us to spread the risk for the whole industry um but certainly it is one that's a i know there's a lot of people who are into it based on a love of deer and a, and a real interest in it rather than a hard-nosed business decision um although there's this i know there are good systems there that were put in at the right time and will be performing performing really pretty well yeah i mean i, th- I think latterly the 
the, there's been a cluster of farms developing the borders from some really top-end farmers who've looked at it as a purely commercial decision. And um, it was probably based on their fear, if you like, of what was going to happen post-Brexit with sheep um, and reducing risk by dropping sheep numbers and replacing them with deer was seen as quite a good option. And to a large extent has, has worked out really well for them. And I think that same group of guys, you know, they're very focused on grass, very, very Absolutely. good at what they Absolutely. do, low input systems, and, you know, they'll, they'll make it work. And it would be a nice, I'm not saying they had the whole job sussed, but they had the beef and sheep systems were working really pretty well. And I think it was a it would be a nice challenge as well to move into some, you know, a, a, a third sector, if you like. I think as well, I mean, you've got the fact these these people generally are are incredibly good stock people and they have seen the challenge of deer as something really new and exciting and have relished that challenge. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, we've got to look at production costs and maximising grass utilisation and also outwintering on forage crops is something that's done routinely in New Zealand with deer and it's something that can be done in, the, in Scotland, as long as you have the correct environment, as in shelter, uh, shelter's a big thing for deer. So you need sheltered paddocks. You need to actually manage the process of the weaning and the transition onto forage crops so that you minimise losses. Um, if you get it wrong, it can go very wrong. But if you get it right, it can be a real um, viable option. Uh, we've outwintered at Rannoch for the past two years on forage crops with zero mortality and very high growth rates. Good. So basically to, to both, that's been a real good whistle-stop tour through deer farming. Um, so much to talk about, so much to think about. Um, really, I think just to finish, it would be good to get from, from both of you just a wee bit of advice from people who are maybe just at the stage thinking about deer, thinking about, you know, is it an option? Is it something we can do? Is a, a couple of key points we should be taking away from today um, if you're at that stage? Well, I would say that talk to other deer, deer farmers are a very, very open bunch of people. Um, they'll share knowledge and share their experiences with, with, with anybody and complete strangers as well. So, yeah, go and talk to other deer farmers and then basically get good advice is, is what I can say. If you don't get good advice, then you can end up making mistakes, which will cost you money. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll second that one, Alan. I think one of the good things when we looked at going to deer farming, we did a lot of uh, visits to other people. You know, they're very open. We went down to the borders to look at a handling system. He was very keen to just give us the blueprint of the design. We've, we've actually worked well with it and it's worked well. And any issues, people are open to talk and, we, to, you know, they're not shy. And I think it's just the, the, the whole... New, new to the system, people get on and talk about their problems and issues. I would definitely think don't treat them just to think I can put them on a hill and leave them. They're very, the more you work with them and the more you manage them, the more you'll get out of them. So this is a farm advisory service podcast and it would be wrong not to do a wee farm advisory service plug. Um, and the only thing I'd be plugging here really is the ILMP, so Integrated Land Management Plans, and particularly the specialist advice that's available. So it's a great opportunity just to have a look at your business. And if you're looking to add in a, you know, a complex new enterprise like this, a specialist new enterprise, 
there's the specialist advice element allows you to get um well it's what it what it says it is you can get a specialist in and certainly the guys at the venison venison advisory service would be best place certainly in scotland to be to be delivering that advice so if if there is if there are people who are interested certainly contact the farm advisory service and we'll, we'll, we'll point you in the right direction as to getting some funding for that and, and maybe start getting the ball rolling and see, and see where it lands up and hopefully with that we'll land up with 50 new deer farms down down the line and a really vibrant venison sector going forward so to both of you um to alan and to ali just a, a big thank you for for your knowledge and experience today i've certainly thoroughly enjoyed it and i'm sure every listening will be the same so thank you very much if you enjoyed listening to Stock Talk, you may enjoy some of our other podcasts, such as Crofting Matters, which is a 12-part monthly show that discusses all things crofting in Scotland, including livestock management. You may also enjoy our new podcast, Agriculture, which tells the stories of some interesting and influential people in the agricultural industry. Just search Crofting Matters or Agriculture wherever you get your podcasts from. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.